Welcome to the Rural Revitalization Network podcast, and I am your host, Pastor Rob Beckett. The Rural Revitalization Network is committed to encouraging pastors, churches, and communities throughout rural America to engage, equip, and empower through local resources to build God's church. Thank you for uh, joining us today for Episode 7 of Rural Revitalization Podcast. And today, our special guest is Dr. Todd Bolsinger. And Dr. Bolsinger serves as the Associate Professor of Leadership Formation and Senior Fellow for the Dupree Center for Leadership at Fuller Seminary. His books include Canoeing the Mountains, which we will be talking about today. But it was also a recipient of the Outreach Magazine's resource of the year in pastoral leadership. And he also wrote, It Takes a Church to Raise a Christian, a Christianity Today Award of Merit recipient. And we are just pleased to have him with us today. And let's just go right into the the interview and hear what Dr. Bolsinger has to uh, say to us and share with us today. Well, we want to uh, welcome Dr. Bolsinger with us today, and and we're just excited to come and, and talk about his book. And uh, so we have Dr. Bolsinger with us today, and and sir, I just want to welcome you. And uh, can you just uh, tell us just for a moment a little bit about yourself uh, for anyone that uh, hasn't uh, uh, known you, but uh, also uh, just talk about how this book came about. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, and please do call me Todd. It's it's, it's really we're having a good conversation among colleagues here. Um, so yeah, for 27 years I served as a pastor of local parishes, uh, 10 years on the staff of a large church in Los Angeles, and then for 17 years I was the senior pastor of a church in a little coastal community, and um, loved every bit of it. And then I got to one of those moments in that almost every pastor gets to where you're looking at the the changes that need to happen for the church to continue to thrive. And you're, and I realized I didn't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like I'd run, I'd run out of things that I could do. And I ended up having a, a group come work with us and a coach that um, came, uh, came to work with me. And I started learning what's called adaptive leadership, mm-hmm. which is how you lead when you are off the map, when you no longer have best practices, when you're in what we call uncharted territory. And, that led me into a long process of doing that work, not only with my church, but I started doing stuff and stuff. I'm a Presbyterian, so I did stuff in our Presbytery. I did a big project for our denomination. And about eight years ago, I ended up going back to my old alma mater, my seminary, where I'd gotten two of my degrees and joined their senior administration to help them navigate the changing world of seminary education. So now um, I run a church leadership institute for the seminary, um, um, and I have my own consulting company and speaking company, and I wake up every single day trying to help faith leaders thrive as change leaders, yeah. And, yeah. and that's really what I do. Amen. So that's great. Uh, so I, I got one question for you, though. It just sort of sparked me when you said that, is uh, so you were uh, brought in, hired in to help an institution to make change and i can think oh man how daunting that is we think with our churches trying to change institutions is like trying to push a mountain with a with a four-wheel drive you know 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the thing about institution, especially seminary education, is think about this. It's both a, it's both like a church in that we have deeply held convictions, but it's also built on like a university model, mm-hmm. which is about 1100 years old, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. the entire university model was built actually out of a seminary in uh, the University of Paris Sorbonne. So what you're looking at is trying to bring changes to an 1100 year old religious institutional model. So yeah. yeah, it's pretty resistant. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty daunting task, but uh, you know, I'm sure they're in good hands. So uh, let's just talk about the book just for a moment. Uh, for mm-hmm. uh, for anyone that that hasn't read it and has and doesn't know anything about it, could you uh, just talk about for a little bit how, and especially for uh, the small and rural church pastor, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. that is the that is the um, the ones that we're trying to reach in the network, uh, that is what we're working for because that's that's who I am. That's that's the heart that I have. And so we're trying to bring resources uh, to these pastors to help them because many times they're like, you know, just like you said, uh, my, my repertoire is just, it's been drained. It has a hole in the bucket. There's no more left for it. How can this book really help them? So um, the title, Canoeing the Mountains, comes because I built the metaphor for thinking about change and leading change on the historical story of the Lewis and Clark Corps of Discovery. Um, They were sent by Thomas Jefferson. If you remember your 11th grade history class, they were sent to find a water route that would connect the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean. And what they knew at that point was to do that, you'd have to fly, you'd have to, you know, sail around the Gulf of Mexico, go up the Mississippi River, you'd connect to the Missouri River, And then there was this question about how the Missouri River that cuts from Missouri all the way across North Dakota and Montana would connect to the Columbia River from the other side from the Pacific. And their ships had already gone up partway up the Columbia River. They just didn't know where the middle part was. If they could find the way to connect it, then what they'd have is a water route. And that water route is really the center of the trade route. So, you know, basically for for the better part of 300 years, um, every European nation had been basically trying to claim the water routes. It'd be like owning the internet today. <laughs> like you're, it's gonna, it's gonna make that country pretty, pretty powerful. And so the entire intention was to find this water route that everybody just knew was there. They'd mm. been looking for it. They mm. called it the Northwest Passage in some places. And what happened was, is after 18 months of going upstream, uh, they walked up the side of a of a hill one day, looking for a stream on the other side believing that they were gonna like carry their canoes a half a day, put them in a stream on the other side. And after 18 months of paddling hard upstream, they now believe they're gonna get to go downstream. They're gonna get to like coast all Mm -hmm. the way to the Pacific Ocean. You know, if they get there, take a selfie, send it back to Thomas Jefferson, (laughs) you know, turn around and go home, right? Right, right. And what they found of course was the Rocky Mountain. And what's hard for those of us who are familiar with the geography of the United States today is they say, well, of course there'd be this massive mountain range. Well, nobody in of European descent had ever seen it. Mm-hmm. Their idea of mountains was like the Appalachian Mountains, Shenandoah Mountains. Right. I, I did I did a presentation on this not too long ago for a group of Roman Catholic church planting missionaries <laughs> who were in Southern Virginia. That literally we were staring out the window at the Appalachian Mountains, mm-hmm. and what I realized was that was what they thought a mountain was. These rounded peaks, you could almost drag it. Imagine dragging a canoe over one. Mm-hmm. They had no idea of 14,000 foot peaks that would go above the tree line that would become so vertical that there's no way a river could actually go through it. 
And what they realized was at that moment was everything in front of them was completely different than everything behind them. I think that that is, for me, when I read the book, that was the absolute. So Jay, when, when he told me to read it, he says, he says, just know this, that what is in front of you doesn't look like what's behind you and what you just left. Yeah. And, and at the time, I, I, I really didn't get it because I didn't read the book yet. And I read the book and I was like, wow, that's, that is so much, so much uh, what I was experiencing that uh, I, I was a new pastor uh, at, mm-hmm. at a church uh, that was struggling and, and, and just common sense. And, you know, my age, I started pastoring at a late age. I didn't start pastoring until I was 50 years old. So I started at a late age. So I, I used some um, life experiences. You know, I've lived and done some things, know some things, have a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of gray hair to go with it. And, um, and those things served me well early on. <laughs> But man, when it come and I looked at those Rocky Mountains and it was like, where do I go from here? And so, so yeah, I get that. Well, well, and if you're like most leaders, what you do when you get to like face a set of mountains, like unexpected change, mm-hmm. it's different than we expected is what you do is you paddle harder. Mm-hmm. And that's the worst thing you can do. Right. Paddling harder in a river where there isn't any water mm. is just going to exhaust you and you're not going to get anywhere. And what that means for us is most of us have been taught how to pastor based upon the mental models of pastoring for the last hundred years. And they don't realize that all of them have been disrupted in the last 20 years and accelerated in the last two. Mm. Like what's happened Absolutely. during the pandemic is that every church got disrupted. And every pastor says, well, this is, of course, what you do as a pastor. The answer is it's not, of course, anymore. So the and that's the the cool thing about this. And actually, before we even started the interview, this book was written before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So and the thing is, you could read it and say, oh, man, this is, you know, it, it, it's a pandemic era a book because it was written for that, but you actually wrote this before that because a, a lot of these struggles, uh, a lot of these things that they are going through, these are, um, I don't know what, I don't know what to call them other than these are, uh, almost laws, you know, well, you had the law well, of gravity to a post Christendom mm-hmm. world and Christendom doesn't mean everybody's a Christian. Mm-hmm. What it means is Christianity has a home court advantage. You know, so if you're playing, if you're playing a game, if Duke and UNC are playing a basketball game, home court matters, right? Right. right. You get, if you, you get, I mean, they may only be a few miles away, but mm-hmm. if you're playing on the Duke floor, that means all, most of the fans are Duke fans. And what most of us had for most of our lives was the church was supported by Christianity. So I have an example of this, that in my office uh, at the seminary, I have a copy of the, of the Los Angeles Times. Los Angeles Times from 1963. In the Los Angeles Times, there was an article on the church that I had served back when I was training. It, um, in 1963, that church had 9,000 members. I served at that church on the staff when it had about 4,000 members. Hmm. Today, it has about 500. But in 1963, the Los Angeles Times also published a week's worth of daily Bible readings. So if you can remember a day when the L.A. Times or the New York Times yeah. or the Chicago Tribune would help you with your morning quiet time. Right. You right. can remember Christendom been the big change that's happened over the last. Yeah. Years. And, and in my in my thought process, 
uh, there was a time when the church was central in society. In other words, everything evolved around it. Uh, shops, yeah. shops would yeah. close on Sunday. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You couldn't go buy things. People respected the fact. As a matter of fact, you wouldn't go and visit someone at church time because you know they yeah. were going to church. Even the government, um, the oh, yeah. municipalities, they yeah. they would center everything around. So there was a time when the church was actually central in our societal life. Now we're actually, we're, we're barely even out on the fringes. Uh, matter yeah. of fact, uh, a lot of times the church is not even on the map anymore as yeah. far as in, in anybody's life. Yeah. So if you think about it this way, um, almost every small town in America was founded with the same city plan. You can go into the downtown. Mm -hmm. There's a central square with a fate with a statue of the most famous dead guy. Why? Because everybody believed that at the center of society was law, education, and religion. Amen. And that religion was Christian religion, even if people weren't Christians. Like in 1963, Billy Graham's crusades were at all time high. People needed Jesus in 1963. The only difference is that then if they said yes to Jesus, there was all kinds of support for them, even in the culture right. where today that's radically different. And so what you now have is churches who have to all decide, what are you going to do about going forward when the world in front of you is totally different than that? And you've been trained for the world behind you. So that, that looking forward. So now they're, they're up to, it's pretty much a ditch now. It's no longer a stream or a river, or it's a ditch that they're pretty much at. And they're looking at these mountains. So uh, talk about just for a minute, some of the adaptive capacity they had to have, some of the things that they had to do to be able to accomplish the mission that yeah. was set before. So the, the idea of an adaptive challenge is this kind of is this idea that you can no longer rely on your old best practices? So the dip, so this language comes from two guys out of Harvard, Ronald Heifetz and Marty Linsky, who did a bunch of work on this. And what they basically said was, you could look at almost every problem an organization faces, and it's either a technical problem or an adaptive challenge. A technical problem means an expert can solve it. It doesn't mean it's simple, right? Like a heart bypass is a doctor solving a technical problem or, uh, you know, flying an airplane <laughs> and yeah. landing it safely. That's a technical problem. I would say preaching the Trinity without committing heresy. Wow. That's a technical problem. It's, it's complicated, but we teach you at the seminary how to preach on the Trinity without using like, you know, water or eggs or shamrocks or something right. that right. All, are all some kind of heresy. So what we teach you instead is how to be experts. So we've learned how to be experts, like with the scriptures, with history, with counseling, with, you know, those Christian education. Adaptive challenges are when you can no longer rely on your past expertise. So what adaptive capacity is, is it means you have to learn, you have to lead while you are learning in real time. So adaptive challenges require learning. Adaptive challenges also always a result in loss. If you came on this trip because you're a canoeer and you built those canoes with your own bare hands and the and the boss comes back and tells you, by the way, we've looked at the future and there's not a river, we're going to have to drop your canoes. We're going to have to burn your canoes right, <laughs> for right, firewood. Right. Well, that's really painful. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to let go of things. So requires learning, results in loss. And the last part of it that we talk about a lot is it, you have to navigate competing values. 
you have to decide exactly what's most important and what is essential and what is expendable. And frankly, you know, Rob, you know, those are really painful, difficult conversations to have yeah. uh, when people would rather you lead through expertise with no loss whatsoever, with one clear value. Right. And then those things are gone. Yeah. And, and again, I think these are some wonderful truths that we can take and that we can learn from them and help us to not necessarily foresee, but to prepare for when they do come. And if you're going to pastor long enough, I'm going to tell you right now, they're going to come. They are coming. <laughs> but, um, well, but, well, they're right on us right yeah. now. Every church I know is right in the middle of this very moment. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So what I like is the book will tell you that, you know, they did accomplish their mission. They succeeded mm -hmm. in that, but it didn't look anything like they thought it was going to look like when they first started. So I just want to encourage the uh, anybody out there that's in leadership, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a board member, or what, or or whatever it may be, uh, and and in life in general, if you're in leadership, this book will help you. And I encourage you to get it, to read it, and apply uh, the principles to our leadership the way we do things. And I, it's going to help you. It's going to help you a lot. So, uh, doctor, I'm just going to ask you, uh, again, we're talking to small rural pastors. Some of them just feel like they're, they feel like they're out there in their canoe by themselves. Sometimes can you give us just an encouraging word for them, uh, as we close out today? Yeah, I guess my biggest encouragement is to get involved in things like your network. Uh, mm -hmm. because one of the things we've learned is, um, it's easier to learn and necessary to learn together. Yeah. It's hard to do this by yourself. It'd yeah. be like even the core of discovery, they needed, you know, 28 people. Mary, Mary Lewis didn't go by himself. Mm. And the very first thing he did is got himself a partner in William Clark. They were known literally as Lewis and Clark, right. you know, them together right. as a partnership. And, and one of the things we've done is we've developed a set of cohorts where small church pastors can come together with a little, they can bring a little team from their church and they can be with other teams from other churches and they can learn and get trained in this together. We call this our online adaptive capacity cohort that is available through the church leadership institute that i run and the reason we do it is because we found that when people want to take their churches off the map they need to be able to go as a core of discovery they need to go with some other people who want to go with them and that's why i think the work you're doing is so important Rob. Well, you're creating a, a network of people yes. learning together yeah and it's and and the thing is we don't have to reinvent the wheel in every single church, because if we can share uh, these principles, these things that God has revealed to us, we can share them with others. And and community is what we're about. We're we're built for relationship. So let's build the relationship that will help us to lead and do God's work. And yeah. we just want to thank you today uh, for being with us. And uh, we look forward to talking to you in the future. And God bless.